I'm Julianne DeLynn Hatton, and you're listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. This series will discuss the Prophet Joseph Smith and the authenticity of the gospel he restored. I'll be speaking with Michael R. Ash, author of the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Welcome, Michael Ash. Hi, Julianne. Let's talk about this week's topic. Yes, today uh, we're going to talk about Tumbaga. Tumbaga. Now, that's not something your average Latter-day Saint has heard of. Why? No. Uh, well, it's a fun word to say. <laughs> I, I do like saying that. It's, it's uh, something that describes it's a metal um, that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but it's uh, a metal that's not used in... Um, you know, common metalworking for for most people. So it's it's kind of an unusual word describing an, uh, an unusual material a little bit. So let's back into this. First of all, how did Joseph Smith describe the appearance of the Book of Mormon? We're used to referring to the Book of Mormon as the golden plates or the gold plates. Um, but Joseph Smith described them as having the appearance of gold. You know, it's not like he had a, a gold tester on hand, you know, that he could tell uh, whether they were or pure gold or what they were made out of, but they, they certainly looked like gold. And he said that they were about six inches wide and eight inches long. So interestingly enough, almost like uh, a, a lot of the electronic readers that we have today. Um, and then he said not quite so thick as common tin. And then, and then the stack of them was uh, nearly um, six inches in thickness. So that our listeners can get a picture in their mind, what else did the gold plates look like? Describe them a little further. Well, uh, some of them, at least two-thirds would be said approximately, were sealed. And uh, it, it sounds like they were actually sealed perhaps with some sort of clip or banding on them. There were three rings that ran through the sides, uh, like hinges, I guess. And so almost like we have with spiral book binders nowadays, except you just had three of these big D-shaped rings. And uh, so we had a stack of them. They were written, you know, with this curious uh, um, engravings etched into the metal. And they, uh, they were, as they moved, they rustled. In fact, we have some of the uh, Book of Mormon, or some of the witnesses, some of the family members that um, had handled the Book of Mormon plates th under cloth that talked about how they they rustled, they had that kind of tinny or metally sound as they ran their uh, thumb or whatever across the plates themselves. Emma describes them as well that way. Yeah, yeah, she actually did. And a couple of the other family members and what ended up being Book of Mormon witnesses had hefted the plates while they were encased in, uh, in a pillowcase or, or in a box. And so we have people that had not only touched them like the uh, witnesses that left their names signed to the, the, the uh, testimony, but people that had handled them uh, before they were revealed. And, and everybody described it as, as having, you know, a, a fairly good heft to them and and, of course, the ones that actually handled them gave better descriptions about uh, uh, the engravings and that they were made of metal. Book of Mormon critics have taken the word gold and run with it. Right. And, and I think it's a common misconception among Latter-day Saints, as well as critics, is that these were plates made of pure gold. And so if you had the dimensions that Joseph Smith gave for a solid block of gold, uh, it would weigh 200 pounds. And 
that wouldn't be a problem except for in Joseph Smith's history, or actually in, in, uh, in Lucy Maximus' history, she talks about how Joseph Smith had to gather the plates from a, um, a log where he had been hollowed out and he had hidden in, in the um, woods. And when he brought those home, he was ambushed by some of the townspeople that wanted to see the plates or maybe to get the plates from him and how he had to run with these plates uh, and, and fight off uh, those that were trying to steal from him as well. Well, if the plates weighed 200 pounds, he wouldn't have been able to do this. And so they say, you know, that this is a proof of fraud, that Joseph Smith made it up because there's no way that he could have had a, a block of 200-pound golden plates. Uh, and that makes sense, except for we Joseph Smith didn't claim they were solid gold plates. He said they had the appearance of gold. I see. So let's go back to the witnesses now, because weren't there witnesses that described the approximate weight of the plates as they handled them? Exactly. And, and you have to remember that these were people that dealt with grains and, and flowers, things that modern-day people, uh, well, we still have people that live on farms and stuff like that, but a lot of people don't deal with uh, weights unless it's at the gym. And so these people handled bags of, of different types of weights regularly and, and had a pretty good approximation of what um, they were handling when they lifted the plates. And, and the range is somewhere between about maybe 50, 60 pounds approximately. So again, that that's contrary to what uh, the 200 pounds would have been if this was a solid block of gold. And of course, it wasn't a solid block of gold, but even if you had air spaces, you know, between uh, plates that were engraven, it still would have weighed maybe, you know, 150, 175 pounds, much heavier than what the witnesses were saying that the plates actually weighed. So what were the plates made of then? Well, this is where it really gets interesting. Um, it was discovered uh, back First time it was written up was back in 1984 uh, in the magazine Scientific America. And uh, a non-LDS scholar by the name of Heather Lechman wrote about these metal objects in South America that were made out of hammered sheet copper. And when they unearthed this copper, it was covered with green corrosion. And when they took off the corrosion, it was discovered the copper had been layered with a with either silver or gold so it would look like that they were entirely made of silver or gold and this metal it was no and this mixture of, of copper and gold is what this actual metal was made out of was known as tumbaga now when most people have wedding adults anyhow wear their wedding rings and and most of it's 14 karat gold um, a lot of people don't know this but 14 karat gold is about 58 percent gold and 42 percent alloys so you you really have just slightly over half of the gold ring being gold itself and, and they they uh, mix it with these uh, other elements other metals to make it strong um, because gold is actually very soft and uh, for people that wear white gold rings, it's mixed with uh, white metals like, like nickel and zinc, and then it's coated with um, rhodium, which is basically in the platinum family, to give it this crisp white look. So it looks very white, almost like silver, what people refer to as white gold. Well, Tumbaga also was a mixture of two yellow metals, copper and gold. And there was a range 
of different percentages of the mixture. I mean, you could have Tumbaga that was uh, as as low as uh, you know ninety seven percent gold to ninety seven percent copper. So, uh, and then you had other trace elements that were included in there as well. Well, if the metals were too much in the gold, if Tumbaga had too much gold in it, it would be very soft, and again, it'd be hard to. Um, engrave on it would bend too easily uh, if it was copper it might be too brittle and so these artisans in mesoamerica um, they knew how to to make this stuff into different uh, types of art pieces but it is the perfect type of metal that could have been used for the book of mormon plates because it can be soldered it can be hammered it can be engraved um, and it, it would have appeared because of the gold plating that they put on top of it that it was made of solid gold so it matches precisely the type of metal um, that we find for the book of mormon and of course the size given for the dimensions of the plate if the if the tumbaga was somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to twelve karat gold um, which would have put it a little bit under maybe about somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 45 percent gold and other uh, copper mixed in there with it, it would have weighed probably between 50 to maybe about 80 pounds, right exactly in the range that the Book of Mormon witnesses said it was uh, that the plates weighed. So the Tumbaga pieces that were found, did they have writing on? Don't have writing. They're art pieces. And so we haven't found Tumbaga plates per se, but we found the right kind of metal that could have been used for plates. Um, and, and like I said, we, we know for a fact that the dimensions of the plates, if it was made in Tumbaga, and if they were about 8 to 12 karat gold, would have been the right weight, would have been strong enough to hold the engraving, and um, this Tumbaga, it was treated with, a, uh, with acid that would remove the copper, like I said, and bring out this 23 karat gold coating so it would have the appearance completely of gold. Now here's the other interesting thing, and it's kind of a side note in it, but Tumbaga um, will corrode. I mean, gold doesn't corrode, but the alloys mixed with the gold will corrode. So again, people that have, you know, wedding rings and stuff, you, you have these prongs that go over the diamonds on, on a wedding ring. Um, those can corrode like in the hot tub. It's not the gold that's corroding, but it's the, the um, chemicals in the hot tub or in the swimming pool and things like that that eat away at it. Well, if Tumbaga was left just in the ground where elements could get to it, you'd have this corrosion, and that's what the, the scientists found as well. You had this green corrosion on there. But Joseph Smith talks about how when he found the Book of Mormon plates, or was rather led to them in the stone box, that the plates were sitting across two slabs of stone that raised it above the dirt. Hmm. And, and he doesn't mention that it's, you know, that's for the purpose of preventing corrosion, but that's obviously what it was for. And so, again, matches precisely um, how Tumbago would have been treated so it could have survived, you know, for over a thousand years for Joe Smith to find him. So, so the look of the metal, the ability to engrave on it, the weight, um, the storage, all of that matches precisely what could have been used in the right part of the world, being in Mesoamerica, that they would have used to make uh, uh, plates with the appearance of gold. And we also have evidence that there is writing on plates anciently. That's correct. And, and these come from uh, the ancient old world. Um, like I said, new world, there's, there's, I wouldn't call it writing. There's, there's so far, there's little pieces with, uh, um, you know, caricatures and, and kind of art pieces on it. 
but from the old world, which is where the brass plates came from. We have to remember that that uh, Nephi didn't make up this idea of, on his own of writing the gold plates. So he brought the idea with him from the old world because they already had the brass plates that were written on. And we find hundreds of examples of writing on metal plates from the ancient old world, some of them that date back right to the precise time that Lehi would have been leaving in Jerusalem. And there's, there's gold plates from that era that are written, and they're religious plates, uh, some of them written in, uh, in the Etruscan um, writing, some of them written uh, in Paleo-Hebrew. And, and so th- we find from the old world actual examples of religious writing being recorded on metal plates so that they could be preserved and survive. And, and so that uh, puts a stamp of approval and authenticity on the claim that Lehi brought the brass plates over. And of course, the tumbago lends credibility to the fact that these could have been reproduced in the new world with plates that uh, look like gold. Thank you, Michael Ash. Thank you, Julianne. Thanks for listening to Faith and Reason on the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne Delin Hatton, inviting you to keep the faith. Michael Warash is the author of the book, Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt, as well as the book of Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. Faith and Reason is produced by Tom Hatton with music courtesy of Arthur Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org. 